Welcome back to the Fourth Estate Podcast. As Maid rules to a sunny conclusion, we take a look at a buzzworthy paperback, an out-of-this-world book from our sibling imprint, and a supremely talented new writer, Claire Loudon. Really do watch this space. We also have a few admissions to make. You'll never believe the literary skeletons in some of the fourth estate's closets. First up, we chat to Lallian Paul, author of The Bees, shortlisted for this year's Bailey's Prize for Fiction. Not only shortlisted, it is also the only piece of debut fiction in the phenomenal selection. Here's the author herself on the genesis of her remarkable work. It was a gift from a friend of mine who was a beekeeper and dying of cancer, but I didn't realise that until she'd gone. One of the last things she ever said to me was that she hoped there'd be a flowering of creativity when she'd gone. And I hope now I know what she meant by that, because in the immediate aftermath of her death, I started to read about the honeybees that she loved so much and were called her girls. Mm -hmm. She called them her girls. And first I started reading to try and keep close to her. And then very quickly, I started learning these amazing facts about the real life of the honeybee and the biology of the species. And I became engrossed and one amazing fact led on to another until I started to just see and feel and imagine the life of these bees. And then the critical fact was when I came across information about the laying worker, the so-called laying worker, who is the one in 10,000 in every hive, who will spontaneously begin to form eggs in her Mm. otherwise sterile body. And biologists don't know why, But there are also bees that go hunting for this one in 10,000 bee, Mm. and they will find her, kill her, and eat her eggs. And biologists refer to them as fertility patrols. Mm. And I just thought police state, religion, queen, hierarchy, fugitive, mother, forbidden love, and uh, rush to find out if someone had written this book already. Luckily, they hadn't. Luckily, they hadn't. <laughs> so what was your writing process like? Uh, very, very fast. Desperate to get it done mm. quickly before someone else had this <laughs> idea. So I wrote the first draft in six weeks, not looking back, like one of those cartoon characters that runs off the edge of a cliff, desperately pedalling or cycling and trying not to think about what I was doing in case I spooked myself and stalled and fell. Mm. So I just kept going and then I had that very satisfying pack of paper on the table which showed that I'd done something. Then I could go back and look at it and think, right, I have to fix this now. Mm. Next up is the brilliant international journalist Chris Wright, author of No More Worlds to Conquer, on what happened when he went to visit the first man to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. I went and interviewed a man called Don Walsh for Discovery Channel magazine about five years ago. And Don Walsh is famous, will always be famous for one thing, and that's going to the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the Mariana Trench, uh, for the first time in 1960, with another man, Jacques Picard, who's since died. Uh, Huge achievement. It wasn't repeated for more than 50 years. Uh, When it was, it was by Jim Cameron, the movie director. And uh, my idea was to go over there and interview him on the 50th anniversary of the voyage. And uh, I went and found him in this remote town called Dora in Oregon, And he was 
polite enough talking through the voyage 50 years ago, but you could tell he was a little bored of talking about it. And then I asked him, what came next? You, you were 27 when you did this. You're in, in your late 70s now. Uh, what, what happens next after, after this pivotal moment? And his face just lit up. And he said, well, a lot of people think I died. <laughs> because uh, no one ever asked him about what came next. And in fact, he'd led an extraordinary life after this moment. He'd uh, commanded a submarine, served in two wars. He'd been to the Arctic and the Antarctic more than 50 times. There's a ridge in Antarctica named after him for his contributions to science. He launched his own school of the University of Southern California with the rank of dean. Uh, he dived on the Titanic, the Bismarck. No one ever asks him about any of those things because he's the man who went to the bottom of the sea in a funny-shaped boat. <laughs> And then he talked for about an hour and a half, just brightly and enthusiastically, about later life. And when I finished the interview and I was heading home, I thought, well, this must be true for so many of these people. Mm. If you're known for one moment, uh, for walking on the moon, for uh, an Olympic record, then what do you do with the rest of your life when we've already kind of compartmentalised yourself, your life, into, into one line? So over the next few years, I set about finding people like that, partly this generation of Americans, of which Walsh was a part, and the Apollo astronauts were a part, uh, also sports people, musicians, even people who'd had to overcome uh, some terrible ordeal that was not of their making, mm. but people for whom they will always be known for one moment. And that was what fascinated me, this idea of what next? How do you find meaning in your life when its most uh, pivotal moment has already taken place? I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that there is no one in the HarperCollins offices who has not ever, even once, told a white lie about a book they have supposedly read. Yeah, Bleak House. I love the bit set in Kent. So to commemorate the publication of Andy Miller's The Year of Reading Dangerously, in which Andy committed to read every single book that he had ever lied about reading, we persuaded a few brave fourth estaters to publicly declare their pledges for the books they will read this year. I am going to read my mother-in-law's book, All of Us There. If I don't read it soon, she's never going to talk to me again. I'm told it's absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. I actually can't lie about having read that one. And I'm going to read Madame Bovary, which I have lied in the past about having read, but I'm told it's absolutely brilliant. And your name is? Nicholas Pearson. <laughs> I'm Andy Miller's editor. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I've Nick. read his book. Read his I like book. it. So, what's your name? My name is Candice Carty Williams. I am the fourth estate mother Commons marketing assistant, and I pledge to read World War Z by Max Brooks. I put it off for the longest time because reading about the living dead is surely ten times more frightening than watching the chaos that they bring on screen. The imagination is stronger than what the eye sees. Oh, that was. Hello, my name is Anna Kelly and I'm an editor at Fourth Estate. And my reading pledge is, well, I pledge to read Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector. So a friend gave me a copy of this book about two birthdays ago with a very passionate recommendation. But sadly, it's still sitting on my shelf, unread. This is despite the fact that I've been in plenty of conversations over the last two years where people have been talking about Clarice Lispector as a genius of modern literature. And usually the friend who gave me the book is in the conversations, so I, I try to stay quiet and avoid making eye contact with him. I get the feeling that this book is absolutely amazing and would completely rewire my brain if I read it. But then when exactly is the right moment to read a book that promises or threatens such an intense effect? I feel like it demands a very large 
empty room, most likely painted all in white and completely silent. And I'm just not sure when I'll next be in such a situation. Hi, I'm Tom Killingbeck, publishing executive at Fourth Estate. I pledge to read David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. I've been putting it off because it's impractically large for true-based reading, and I've been trying to avoid becoming a stereotypical white 20-something suit who totes hip 90s novels as fashion statements on public transport. Thank you, Tom. Left of the Bang has already been described as the definitive novel of a generation of Londoners, and it isn't even out quite yet. William Boyd has praised it as a remarkable, compelling and shrewd look at the way we live now, clear-eyed, audacious and disarmingly honest. Here's author Claire Loudon in conversation with her editor, Lettice Franklin, on what her first novel means to her. I think the short answer is that it's about uh, sex and war. Uh, The longer answer is that I'm interested in the experience of being young in London today, Mm -hmm. Um, but more specifically the pressure on people who are in their 20s to be having a terrific time both socially and sexually. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to explore the truth behind that because I think people are often not having as good a time as they seem to be having. And the other thing that the book is about is the transition from soldier, sorry, from the transition from civilian to soldier. Um, very interested to watch a couple of friends entering the army and watching what that was like for them, that transition process. So it's partly set in Afghanistan and you follow one of my characters through his training to that point. And could you talk a bit about the title, which is Left of the Bang? Yeah, Left of the Bang itself is actually a military term. If you're teaching young soldiers about uh, IED explosions, you have a timeline and anything preparation or prevention that happens before the explosion is left of the bang on the timeline. And then the aftermath is right of the bang. And do you think, how did the title, Was did the title come before the novel? No, um, the title took a very long time to come actually. I always had the shape for it. It was called Before the Bang for mm-hmm. a really long time because I, I had this, this shape, this sort of sense of an explosion and the build-up to an explosion and the suspense before that mm-hmm. sort of held breath moment. Um, and also the idea of dummy explosions. What happens if you expect something to go off and then it doesn't go off? So that template, that pattern was always there. But I didn't know the military term. Um, and then by great good luck, yeah. there was a military term that fitted and it was a very, very good day. Must have been so exciting <laughs> yeah, it was Absolutely brilliant. I was on holiday with a group of friends, actually. And yeah, a friend of mine who is in the military, um, I was just saying, I'm desperate, I can't think of a title. And this is this is the kind of feeling I want. And he thought for about two seconds, he goes... Oh, you mean left of the bang? <laughs> so good. And I wonder whether, because I thought a lot about the bangs when I was reading the novel, and obviously the title makes you look for the bang, and there's a fantastic moment in the first chapter which ends with the sort of, you know, the sense that the bang will come soon, but actually the bang that you set up in the first chapter, I think we can do a spoiler there, doesn't really necessarily come or doesn't become the bang that the whole novel waits for. And throughout, it feels like there are all of these... There's another scene very soon afterwards where there are two characters on the tube waiting for a bomb to go off, which doesn't go off. Yes. And I feel like there's a sense of anticlimax slightly going on there. And do you think that actually, is there one bang in the novel that you are... that the whole thing is building up to? I suppose if you wanted to find one bang... There is one there is, bang. there is one... There's, yes, and there's another bang that I think blows the characters yeah. in the relations that we know them apart. 
But I don't, I, although I was always heading for that moment of crisis, I don't think that it's necessarily, it's, it's not necessary to say that that's the bang that the whole novel waits yeah. for. It was, it was really more of a sort of pattern. Um, Do you think there's something going on where actually the first, the first chapter shows Tam catching her father in the middle of a passionate embrace with someone who's not her mother? Yes. And in some ways, that's a crisis point that the whole novel is then to the right of. Yeah, I've had that said to me before, actually, that the whole novel is, is to the right of the bang, happening in yeah. aftermath. And I don't mind that idea at all either. And um, it's interesting, isn't it, thinking about how people are so shaped by these crucial moments. And I guess I also wanted to ask you about whether you'd say it was a coming-of-age novel in terms of being about the sort of preparation for life. Because all of these characters are actually preparing for things, it feels like, doesn't it? Yes, I think it probably is a coming-of-age novel in, in a rather depressing way, a sort of <laughs> learning-your-lesson novel. Yeah. Um, not that I think any of my characters need to be taught a lesson, but I think lessons are certainly learned nonetheless. And obviously you are yourself very young to be a writer. We're very young for writers and artists. And how much of it is based on your real-life experience? Myself and my friends? Mm -hmm. Whew, um large parts I would say a lot of it's observation as well as Are you worried about it being coming out? <laughs> no I don't think I am actually um, I think that there's only maybe one person in it who's recognisable mm -hmm. and she's a very minor character so I think <laughs> everything else is sufficiently dressed and people have been really kind and generous with their information and their time and they've all read it so I think I'm okay and no one's pissed off yet no not yet <laughs> I think one of the maybe great that's naive. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the great achievements of the novel is the believability of the characters thank you I felt like I knew <laughs> thought maybe you'd met all my friends <laughs> but how did you in terms of writing process do you listen to people talk on the bus because the dialogue is fantastic was that a struggle to really nail down how people talk um, yeah, lots of listening on the bus, lots of listening at parties. Um, I think that that's something I really enjoy writing, is dialogue. But mm -hmm. I have to say it was hugely improved in the editing process um, with you and with Ollie Rouse. Uh, just snipping here and there, you actually need less stylization than you think mm -hmm. to show people speaking realistically. That was a real lesson for me. Yeah. We um and uh all the time in natural speech. And you only need one um per page to show people umming and erring. That's something I've definitely learnt. Yeah, I'm always tempted to have all the ums. <laughs> and what inspired you to write the novel in the first place? I think probably the thing that came first was my fascination with that transition process from civilian to soldier. Mm -hmm. I thought, here's somebody, here are people who are doing really extraordinary things for modern life. They're having to think about right and wrong, life and death, in a way that average people don't have to. I mean, most of us just get to not think about that until like major crises in our lives these days. Uh, there are a few professions. You have the army and you have doctors, the hospital world, nurses... Uh, where you do have to think about morality and life and death on an almost daily basis. And the interface between that very heady uh, life that you live in those worlds, where you form intense friendships very quickly and you're really living on the edge, to use a cliche, that sort of interface between that world and the sort of trivial world of the pub where we all kind of meet up in the evenings really interested me. To have those people coming back out of those mm -hmm. worlds and, and trying to integrate with with normal life. And were you worried about what 
um, the juxtaposition of the pub and the wall, for instance, does for your other characters. Because I certainly found when reading it that you look at... So there's one character who's about to go off to Afghanistan and then there's another character who's having a panic attack about what she's going to eat for dinner. And there's a weird... Um, perspective cast on the Lon- the London centric sections obviously yes by having this life and death thing but as a reader there's an interesting thing going on where you're like I really care what she's going to have for dinner <laughs> and so you know I wonder whether it's dangerous to juxtapose the two together and whether you worried about that I'm very glad you cared um, <laughs> I really cared that was something I worried about I worried that um, that was my biggest worry while writing it I think that what goes on in middle-class London is fairly unimportant in the scheme of things. And it is, and it isn't, because at the same time everything's important, everything matters to the individual. Um, I don't mind if there is a contrast, and I think I'm just going to have to hope that that people like you end up caring. Callum's Cambridge friends had long since abandoned their brodel and taken jobs as bankers, lawyers, management consultants. All of them were homeowners, and with a few exceptions. Will Hetherington, devoted playboy. Colin Warner, probably gay. Leo Golding, fledgling neurosurgeon and workaholic. All of them were married. And then Leo got engaged to a pretty, plump anaesthetist called Bex. They celebrated with drinks at their new house in Herne Hill, Tamsin went to the party with Callum, a little reluctantly. She was eight years younger than him and she found his clever, older friends intimidating. She also resented the ridiculous fancy dress that Callum's friends found so amusing. It seemed absurd that all these intelligent people, now mostly in their thirties, should want to make themselves foolish in this way. Tonight's theme was A&E. Many guests had simply come in lab coats or pilfered scrubs, but there were also plenty of full-blown head wounds, pregnancies, crutches and stethoscopes. The room was decorated with crepe bandages and surgical masks. Even the playpen set up in the corner for the few couples who already had babies had been draped with a red cross flag. Tamsim had let Callum stick a plaster on her cheek, but that was as far as she was prepared to go. No, 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 that's precisely the problem. The privileging of a university degree over all other forms of higher education, said a short girl, wearing a tight white tank top covered in fake blood. Tamsid had met her several times before, but she couldn't remember her name. If that doesn't encourage elitism, then... Leo, their host, shook his head impatiently. I just don't think we can begin to understand what the world might look to someone without certain basic advantages. And I'm not just talking financially. Tamsin had been stuck in this conversation for over 20 minutes, and she was bored. Neither the girl, whom she didn't like, nor Leo, whom she did, had thought to ask her opinion at any point. She went to drink her wine, but her glass was empty. Callum was nowhere to be seen. Tamsin Jarvis, looking as ravishing as ever. Will Hetherington inserted himself between the girl and Tamsin and deposited a loud kiss on each of Tamsin's cheeks. He was one of Callum's closest friends. For three years at Cambridge, they had been on the university water polo team together. For once, Tamsin was pleased to see Will. She actually knew him independently of Callum. His family had lived near hers in Holland Park, and Tamsin had encountered Will at intervals throughout her childhood. 
mostly at their parents' parties. She remembered him as a boisterous teenager, teasing her unkindly about her skinny legs. Now 32, Will was good-looking in the most obvious way. Tall, with naturally olive skin, glossy dark blonde hair, Bambi eyes and strong cheekbones. He could have been a mid-90s boy band pin-up. Only the full mouth was out of register. There was a hint of the predator about his pout, a complacency that was somehow aggressively expectant. Tamsin, you're dry, we can't have that. Will produced a bottle of champagne and started to fill her glass. These days he was so scrupulously polite to Tamsin, but there was always something in his tone that gave her the impression he was secretly laughing at her. Hope you don't mind, Leo. I invited some reinforcements for later, including two hot lesbians, he went on, turning to the girl in the blood-stained tank top. I'm not gay anymore, she said. Will grinned and ruffled her carefully styled hair, which was already sparked with grey at the sides. I'll believe that when I see it, darling. Reinforcements! Yes, that's fine, said Leo, detaching himself from the little group. Sorry, I've got to go rescue Bex. She's been cornered by those orthopods she was too nice not to invite. So, said Will, resting one forearm on Tamsin's shoulder and the other on the unlesbian lesbians, as if they were all jolly chums. Isn't this nice? Leo and Bex, the beating of two tender hearts as one, the unimpeded marriage of true minds, etc., etc. Mmm said Tamsin, who never knew quite how to respond to Will's florid speaking style. Talking of true love, he went on, has my secretary managed to keep her paws off your boyfriend? Leah's not your secretary, Tamsin replied evenly. She was remembering why she disliked Will so much. Leah? asked the unlesbian, suddenly interested. As in, Jono and Baz in one weekend, Leah? The same, Will bowed his head. Has she been trying on with Callum? The girl asked Tamsin. She looked amused. No, she's just his flatmate. What, they like, live together? Mm-hmm. The girl raised one dark eyebrow. And how do you feel about that? Leah was a PR officer at Will's law firm, referred to by Will either as his secretary or our resident serial shagger. But despite the girl's reputation, Tamsin didn't feel threatened. In fact, Tamsin never felt threatened by anyone where Callum was concerned. He adored her, and she knew it. Now, though, under the pressure of scrutiny, Tamsin found herself incapable of communicating this conviction. She took an overlarge gulp of champagne and blinked to clear the tears that the fizz brought to her eyes. Leah's cool. We don't see that much of her, but she seems cool. She heard herself say, lamely. The unlesbian stared at her for a moment, then turned back to Will. I heard she fucked Charlie Hoffman. Tamsin held out her empty glass for more champagne. She was, if possible, having even less fun than she'd anticipated. and Year of Reading Dangerously are available now in paperback from Fourth Estate. No More Worlds to Conquer is out now in hardback, published by The Friday Project. Left of the Bang is available in hardback on Thursday the 4th of June. Thank you for listening, and may the 4th be with you.